listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Ladies and gentlemen, we are live and no Kirk DeWint this week. He is out with Jess on vacation. And so since you have made it abundantly clear that the most popular host or guest on here is neither of us, it's just Lisa. Lisa's here filling in for Kirk and we're going to continue our Q&A session. And since Kirk's not here, I get to devour the airtime. All right, so my ego was hit this week because Lisa's episode was our fastest downloaded and highest downloaded episode so far of the year, and I've been on every single one except for that one. And so I step out, addition by subtraction, podcast gets better. However, Kirk pointed out it's entirely about you, so it's just a podcast about you. So what actually is the piece that people wanted? Was it me or was it you? It's the ultimate question. We'll never know. All right, let's let's hop into these things right away here. All right. I've got a question from a made-up name, John Smith. No, just kidding, John. Pocahontas. <laughs> My question is, you often talk about incline training on treadmills and how great it is, but at least since I've been listening, haven't really provided much detail as to what these workouts look like. I do a fair enough of running on treadmills and have no problem transferring traditional flat sessions, such as intervals or tempo, etc., to the treadmill. But I'm not sure how to do equivalent sessions on a steep incline, such as 10 to 15%. If possible, could you please elaborate a little on this type of training and what type of workouts you do? Oh, thanks again. His name is actually James, not John Smith. Well, James or John, whatever your real name is. <laughs> Flashing some guns here, Lisa. Yeah, if you're if you're watching on video, Lisa's letting the cannons out. We do talk a lot about uphill workouts on treadmills, and I suppose we haven't given specific information on that recently. In the past, we actually did an entire episode on uphill training, and a large section of it was treadmill-based, so go back and search for the uphill training episode. However, Cliff Notes is that, I mean, bad answer, every single workout that you currently do flat, you can do uphill. The difficult part is approximating the correct intensity. And so the way I like to do this for athletes who are new to this or just athletes who are preparing for flat and uphill at the same time is really just do one one week and then the uphill version the next week. So an example of that, let's say our classic six by uh, six to eight by thousand meters. It's taken three to five minutes depending on how fast or slow you are, 60 seconds rest. So you do that flat week one on the treadmill. And then you feel the effort the entire time. And then maybe note on there what the the calories per hour, that work effort, kind of that work score that the treadmill is that'll give you. Let's say it's 1,200 calories per hour. Then week two, crank it up to 15% and convert the distance to time. If you were averaging four minutes per thousand, now you're doing six to eight by four minutes with that same 60 seconds rest. And you're trying to match your effort from week one. So you fill the four minutes with the same type of effort, and a good starting point is to approximate that same pace, but with incline. 
And so some treadmills like my Nordic track will say, you know, you have 1200 calories per hour at this pace. So you just match that 1200 others. You just have to go onto a, an online, like incline chart, treadmill, incline pace calculator, or anything like that and chart, and it'll pop up. And then you just say, all right, if 8% at zero, then I have to be at 4% at 10 or whatever it works out to be. That's a good way to start. And then make sure during your warm up, if our classic warm up before a interval session is something like 10 to 20 minutes jogging, then dynamic exercises and then some strides you do your strides starting at the low end of what you think the equivalent pace would be and then you work up to the high end and you use your strides to figure out what feels like kind of the effort i was using last week on the flats and then i'm going to start interval one on that so your first time doing it is going to be the least accurate and then over time you start to get a feel for it like yesterday i did a fart like i did one two three with one minute rest in between and then two, four, six with one minute rest and then three, six, nine. So one minute, one minute on, one minute off, two minute on, one off, three on, one off, and then repeat it with two, four, six and three, six, nine. And that was all done at an incline. And it was all approximating based off of 5k, 10k and a half marathon pace on the flats. But because I've owned my treadmill for a long time, I know that there's about four to six tenths of a mile per hour difference between those three paces on my treadmill. And so this is like my fifth year owning it. And I just know what to go to on there over time. You'll get there. So I know I'm kind of droning on and on about this, but that's the easiest way to do it. Second easiest way is to split that first workout up into flat and incline sets. So let's say you go two by thousand flat and then two by four minute incline and then two by thousand flat and then two by four minute incline. You start figuring out on back to back sets exactly how this felt compared to the rep prior to that. But really, you can just take any single workout, any workout you can dream of, you can do an incline version of it. It just really, really gets difficult the steeper it gets and the higher intensity you're trying to work at. Early on, I recommend doing some tempo work or short, fast intervals. Save those middle ground intervals, that like two to six minute interval. Those are really tough to do because if you tip, you crack early. We're in like a 20 minute tempo or let's say three by 15 minute intervals. You can play around with the pace during and then 30 on 30 off, 60 on 60 off. That kind of thing is really easy to do because if you get the pace wrong on one interval, you just adjust it for the next one. Very good. Was that just way too much blathering? I'm used to Kirk balancing me out here. Here, I'm just, I'm unchecked. I'm on a power trip. I zoned out a little bit. I think you won't be alone. All right. Here we have Kirk. If you're listening to this, we have someone that wrote in and said they would prefer to not have their name read. So Bracken's not making it up. I can see it right here. Anyway, her name, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's good. Uh, she says, any recommendations for transitioning from run walking to running? Would you recommend pushing towards removing walk breaks, even if heart rate still remains in zone three to four while doing run walk intervals? Or would you recommend continuing to work on lowering your heart rate to move towards zone two during most runs? If so, any t tips on working towards lowering that heart rate? Fairly new to structured running and trying to figure out how to be quicker and more efficient. Thanks. Well, there's a lot going on in this one, a lot going on. First of all, my question would be right back to you is how did you determine your heart rate zones? If you're new to, I don't know how new you are to running itself. Maybe you completed a, a zone test of some sort in the past and you're working off that. But if you're newer to running, there's a chance you did your heart rate zones based off of 
something on the bike, that would be the next most common place to do it, in which case your zones will be a little different than running because running elicits generally a higher heart rate response than cycling. So first of all, I would I would say make sure your zones are correct because otherwise you're always going to operate under the assumption that you're actually a zone higher than you really are. But then from there, I guess still not addressing your question, if you're in zone three to four, which is in that threshold area off of walk jog, the the, the running is probably just happening too fast for you. So finding a way to slow it down even more would alleviate the heart rate problem. And if that's not possible, if any sort of running gets you into zone three to four, we're back at, are your zones accurate? And if they are, then you might just have to bite the bullet early on and say, I'm going to to run in zone three to four, and I'm just going to sit there and take it and realize that I'm not being as polarized with this as maybe the experts would say, but it's the only way to get my running in. And so you just do that, but then you can do it less often per week. Then the thing about intensity is that there's no bad intensity. It's just how long can you stay there? That's all training really is, is just balancing out your intensities. And so if you're running three to four, zone three to four, three times a week, four times a week, you're fine. You can't do a lot else with that. If you do it one to two times a week, you can do a lot of extra work with that. So if every time you run, you're in zone three to four, okay, great. But put a day of cross training in between, that'll probably be more sustainable. But to answer your actual question of how do I get out of run walk into running, the easiest way to do it is just start lengthening your intervals. If right now you're doing, let's say, 20 by one minute on, one minute off, then move it down to something like 90 second on one minute off and then two minute on one minute off and then two minute on 45 seconds off you just increase the time spent running and you decrease the time spent resting over time you don't necessarily have to play with both intervals at once in fact it's kind of nice to do to work just on one for a bit and then work on reducing so start lengthening your intervals and then after a while hold those steady and reduce your rest interval a little bit but you can walk run as long as you really want. You could stretch it out to three by 15 minutes, three by 30 minutes with a small amount of rest in between. That's sometimes what ends up happening on long trail runs anyway, is people run, 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 and then they hike up a hill. So there's really no rule to it other than lengthen the interval and shorten the rest over time. We almost just lost our microphone. <laughs> Great advice, Brad. And this is a brand new expensive microphone. Don't drop it on me. I'm fragile. It's more about the microphone at this point. Ugh, fine. You'll, you'll, you'll heal. Microphones <laughs> are not self-healing. <laughs> okay. I w- while you were answering that question, actually, I was reading ahead to the next one. We don't do that on this podcast. Well, I was thinking, yeah, I like this question because every time I go to the chiropractor, he's always like, you should look into insoles. And I'm like, I don't want to get into that. Okay. So anyway, here's the question. It is from Michelle. She says, do you ever use the special insoles that the running stores try and sell you, or do you just stick with the insole that comes in the shoe? I've bought the running store insoles before and liked them, but I'm thinking shoe tech must be evolved enough now so that extra insoles probably aren't needed these days. Curious what you guys would recommend, and I've never heard you mention insoles. Thanks from a fellow master's teethy smile. Well, that must have been for Kirk because I'm not a master's runner. Unless you count CrossFit rules, in which case I've been masters for a year and a half. I'm a master of running (laughs) shoes. So there's a reason I don't talk much about insoles. And that is because I am a running shoe guy. I'm a shoe guy. And one of the things you learn 
in reading all these shoe reviews and listening to the people talk about the shoes that they've developed and why and how is that every single shoe is crafted from the ground up for a specific purpose to move in a certain way. And as soon as you add a different type of insole to it, you compromise some part of that shoe. Some aspect of how it works together has now been compromised. It's been changed slightly. And for some people, it's for the better. If you take a shoe that's designed to work one way and your foot doesn't work that way and you put insulin that helps your shoe, your foot work a different way, sometimes it cures you. But I think that the examples, the examples of that is few and far between. And I think more often it leads you down a road towards, now I'm trying to find the next thing and then the next thing. And it works in these shoes and not in this. And I have a different insole for each shoe and I have to get custom orthotics. And so whenever possible, I would rather fix the chain in my body than trying to fix the attachment point from that chain to an existing shoe. Because then you're really guessing. Like, is it right for my foot? Or is it right for the shoe bed itself? Because the insole has two connection points. As runners, we only have one connection point with the earth. And that is our feet. And so when we add a shoe to it, we still only have one connection point, really. It's just, it's, it's exaggerated. The sole of our foot now has a, something strapped to it. But when you strap a new insole to it and the shoe, now you've doubled the amount of things that can go wrong and can play funky with your stride. So I just don't mess with them. I think most shoes come with the correct insole for that shoe. And if I do swap out, I swap out for a specific purpose that is not structural. For example, the Scott Supertrack RC line of shoes has the greatest sticky insole that I've ever found. The, the insole material just sticks to your socks. And so in trail racing or hybrid racing, stadium racing, uh, OCR, places where you have to plant, cut, move laterally, having your foot not slide around inside your shoe is a really nice thing. And so even like this last race in Michigan, I took my Scott Supertrack RC Elite insole and put it into my Solomon S-Lab Pulsar. And then my foot just feels locked down. And then when it gets wet, it's even stickier. So I do that kind of thing. Or I have a pair of insoles from a, a Kraft um, carbon-plated trail shoe, which I really didn't like, but it has a Piva-based insole, which is that nitrogen-infused it's a super foam, but they used it on their insole itself. And it's a big, thick, cushiony, bouncy insole. I will put that inside of some of my shoes just to give a little extra cushion. But they're all neutral in their design. They do not have any support to them. They don't have any structure to them. No hard pieces that force you to land a certain way. So when I do change insoles, it's solely for from, from like to like. I don't go from dislike to like. And there will be plenty of podiatrists or other people out there who are just hard selling the custom insole game, but it's just so rare that you really, really need it. And if you really, really need it, my belief is that you're better off spending your time and money fixing your structure, the ankle stability, mobility, strength, and everything that's wrong with your feet or your calves or your knees or your hips or your lower back so that you can run in neutral shoes. Getting into form correction shoes just rubs me the wrong way because it can cause as many issues as it solves because the shoe is made for a specific purpose and it's not your purpose. So when you try correcting your stride with something that's not made for your stride, you're playing with fire.
And also just keep in mind that these things are super expensive. Custom orthotics are hundreds of dollars plus the time, um, plus the doctor's appointment, things like that. It's like buying the undercoating on cars. Do you, could you use it? Maybe. Are you going to notice any difference? No, you're just going to pay for it. So I almost never, ever, 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 ever recommend custom orthotics. That's a long-winded answer, but that's what you're going to get from a passionate shoe man. Well, and it shouldn't, but I feel like every time I'm like talking to a professional and they're trying to sell me something, I'm more against it. <laughs> I'm more like, no, I'd rather, like you were saying, go the the other route rather than purchasing something from the doctor. I don't know. Well, and I, I agree with that. And then the other piece to that is that they're not experts on running or physiology or running and physiology. Like a chiropractor can't tell you anything more about your shoes than the average person can. It's it's adjacent to their field. Now, they may also have a passion for that and they've researched it. But if they have, they're probably not recommending you that insole. And the people at the running store very often are no more qualified than you are to sell an insole. They simply have a deal with an insole company and they want to move those products because they are high overhead items. So... It should raise your alarm bells when someone's like, here's this fantastic $155 shoe, and you know what would be better for it? A $38 insole. Well, especially because it's not like, you know, he's analyzing my my stride or doing all those things. It's just, it feels like slapping a Band-Aid on a, I don't know, on a giant wound and being like, here you go. This This will fix it, so let's go with this. And I also know he gets like kickback or whatever. It just rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, for sure. And and keep in mind that just like we've had people on here talk about, you can't reliably fix someone's form visually. You have to see it in slow motion and ideally with some sort of like motion capture technology. So do I have some of my athletes send me their form and I look for low-hanging fruit? Yes. Do I recommend orthotics based off of that? Absolutely not. And if whoever this individual is at a shoe store who might say, hey, jog back and forth on the on our sidewalk or run on this treadmill for 20 seconds, I'm going to look at it. If they were that good that they could pick out your structural flaws visually in 20 seconds, they wouldn't be working at that shoe store. They'd be using that highly valuable set of skills in the actual field of running biomechanics. So not that there aren't great shoe store workers out there. There are. And those that are good are really good. But they're not doctors of stride. You go to a stride doctor for that. Okay, so I know you've got a lot of listeners who currently run with orthotics. Probably many who have custom and then I'm sure many more who just feel like they're squishy or whatever. So what would you recommend to those people who are currently using them? Um, and are listening to this. Well, I'm very much a, if it's not broke, don't fix it guy, but I also believe you can optimize just about anything. And so the easiest thing to do is start testing it out on easy runs and maybe just part of an easy run. I also am a shoe rotation guy and you've got into it. Your dad's got into it. My mom's got into it. Everyone that we know around us is now a shoe rotation person because it allows you not to fall into the routine of only one thing ever touches the bottom of my feet. And now I only can move on that. And then if anything goes wrong with that, I'm stuck. So I use a different shoe for my easy days, for my fast days, for my interval days, for my long days. And I rotate it so that my feet are always getting some different landing pattern within the same structural principles of how I land. 
And so you can do that with your orthotics. You can start playing around with it. But at the same time, like if it's worked for you for 30 years, who am I to tell you it's not working for you? But if you've never tried it without it, you, you're, that's the thing about orthotics. It's like anything else. Like if you learn it early, that's all you know and you don't deviate from it. So if you've never gone without it or it's been a long time since you've tried without it, shake it up a little bit. Live a little bit. Try on some of your easy days or some of your fast days. Those are the two safest ways to do it because on the easy days you're running without a ton of impact and on your fast days you're running with your best form and you're getting off the ground quick. So it's less likely to really come about into an issue. Tempo days, long run days, those are times I wouldn't start with playing around with it. But see what happens with a more neutral, non-insole approach. Perfect. All right, let's have some fun, Bracken. Okay, Andy wrote in, and Andy, I hope you are okay with only Bracken answering this. It's a would you rather question. Would you rather run an ultra marathon fueled entirely by candy circus peanuts or lose both big toenails during the race? I believe there's a follow-up to that because I think I answered this one with them. Did I ask a clarifying question? Yes, although you didn't answer. You just said, LOL, good Lord. Then you asked, do they fall off during or get damaged during and fall off after? That's fair. Judge says during. So I have to choose to either have healthy toes and fuel only on circus peanuts. Candy peanuts. Candy peanuts. What's a circus peanut? Candy candy circus. I think they're like, I've never those, had them. I think they're like kind of foamy. Foamy peanuts. Like yeah. cheaps, but for peanuts. Yeah, but even like firmer than that. But yeah. Or have both big toenails fall off during the race. Okay, he's not here, but do you think I get to drink water during? Absolutely. Give me the peanuts. I don't really blister, as you well know. I don't struggle with blisters. I think I'm just lucky. And as long as <laughs> my feet are happy, I'm pretty happy. And when my feet go bad, I'm a head case. So I don't want to deal with anything unless the only caveat to that is if I could choose when the toenails fall off. Like in the last quarter of the race, I'm if I'm having a good race, I'll I'll bite down on anything. But no. Eh. Thinking about that now. Give me the packing peanuts all day. <laughs> packing peanuts. You can eat those, you know? Yeah? Yeah. That's what I said. Oh, okay. What would you choose? Oh gosh. Well, I've never had a toenail fall off ever. So I'd probably have to go with the candy peanuts. Although I'm not a big, like, peanut person, so I don't know. I, I think they're only shaped. I think they taste like peanuts. Why would they be called candy peanuts? Uh, why are cheeps not tasting like baby chickens? No, those are marshmallows. <laughs> Agree to disagree. My, <laughs> the thing is, like, if you lose your toenails, you deal with the ramifications of that for weeks and weeks and weeks after. Right. If my packing peanuts go down wrong and I DNF or I just deal with mud butt for the next two days it's done it's over with so i'd rather have the short-term drawback and i think i could force myself i would in this scenario here's how i'm playing it i'm taking all of these prior i am chopping or grinding them up to a super fine paste and i'm just mixing a power bottle out of them and i will i can i can swallow anything and you know that and so i will stick with that and i will keep my toenails that is so gross i can like ready to vomit (laughs) I feel like it's like, I mean, we've never had them, so maybe this isn't fair, but it's got to be like marshmallowy peanut flavor. You're going to ground that up into a bottle and drink that? Over trying to chew it? Like a marshmallow? Well, you said they were firmer than cheeps. You said cheeps are marshmallows. You're making me feel gross. I think if I mix anything with water, I can swallow it down. <laughs> anything. So yes, I choose that 100%. And someone should should write in, otherwise I'll research it, what the caloric 
density of these packing peanuts are. Well, that's the thing. If it's just like a ton of sugar or what are you supposed to have when you're running? Carbs, sugar and carbs, then your body can break it down. Well, my point is, do I have to eat like 10 of these per hour or like 300? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good question. In which case, take my nails. I'll DNF. (laughs) Okay, gross. All right, question by Todd. Given Bracken's championship track record, how, if at all, would you adapt or change training for running at a high rocks doubles compared to training for an individual event? Well, I like that you lead with a con- uh, compliment that always plays well with me. And I do have a championship record in running high rocks doubles and that I've never lost one. However, like any team competition, choose your teammates wisely. I always had the best teammate in the competition. If you ranked all the people in it, my teammate was always the best overall person. Number one draft pick. And I was just along for the ride, like a sidecar on a motorcycle. I like your analogies, Bracken. Thank you. Plus, I looked cool, like a sidecar (laughs) on a motorcycle. And I was absolutely sitting in that, especially when Callie was driving. Rich, I could have taken over. Uh, That. Someone asked me about this the other day, about training for doubles versus uh, an individual high rocks. And for our running audience out there, you can tune out for now. But if you do care, Lisa's nodding her head. Yes, tune out. She's lived with these conversations. (laughs) High rocks is a strength and running combination event where you run eight by 1,000 meter run. And in between, there are eight strength stations. So the, the difference between a doubles and a regular is that in doubles, you share the work. It's you go, I go. You run together, and then you share the load on the stations, which means you're only working at worst like 60% of the time. So it turns into a high-intensity interval workout on the stations, and then you just run threshold in between. So you can get away with much less station work and much less of the grindy, arduous, drag it out, like sled push and pull all day long type of work. You don't have to do that. You can just dose the stations at a high intensity and still just keep running and doing all your other stuff. So it's way easier to train for doubles than a high rocks. I have crumbled during my high rocks and crumbled a bit during doubles, but you can recover because you get these 10 to, at timing on the rower, if you split the rowing, you might get... 90 seconds rest, which in the middle of a race is an eternity. In fact, it was long enough for me that I started to cramp when I got done resting so long because my muscles had started locking up. So way, way, way easier. I would do more high intensity on the stations and pour all my time into the running. That sounds great. You happy with that? Yeah. You happy that I didn't talk for 10 minutes about that? No, that was great. To be fair, I'm not like zoning out. It's just I need to re- pre-read the question because hopefully Bracken cuts this out but on the first question I had to start over like four times I just I was like stumbling with my words there were spelling errors in that I just need to you know pre-read I more meant that you could care less about high rocks competitions no I was thinking of the time you were laying on the floor though was that for 90 seconds of rest yep not quite 90 probably a minute Callie was rowing I had COVID I I was running hot that day. I got down on the cold pavement and just laid my skin against the cool ground and tried not to die. And then got back up and tried to get back to work. I'm glad you didn't die. I wasn't contagious. I was on day 11 of COVID. Just to be clear, I'm socially conscious. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Thanks, Obama. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's an in-joke in in our family. (laughs) Just to be clear. (laughs) We understand he wasn't president during this time. Actually, yeah, we just any anything we just say thanks Obama. It's there was someone we knew that one time 
was really upset about something that wasn't having anything to do with Obama. And they just got really mad and said, oh, thanks a lot, Obama. And we thought it was really, really hilarious that they managed to tie that random thing to Obama. So now we just kind of use that as a catch-all. Like, oh, man, stub my toe. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> yes, it's the best. Okay, also, I just noticed I replied to this person. Look. You don't know. Yeah, this is Lisa Bracken's wife. I've been signing people's signatures for years. This was a long time ago. All right, anyway, this one, hopefully when they responded, was not that long ago. Says, question for your next Q&A from Dave. Regarding cross-training, does hill climbing on a bike or Zwift work the same body systems as running up hills? And likewise, would an interval session on a bike improve a person in the same ways an interval running workout would? Cheers. Cheers indeed. Uh, systems. Yes and no. So the muscular system is not going to work the same way biking uphill as running uphill. But cardiovascular system, yes. If you can run uphill and your heart's pumping, and when you bike uphill, it's pumping. Oxygen transport is oxygen transport. Dealing with lactate, dealing with being in a in a anaerobic state, that's all the same. And so you can get every bit as anaerobically, anaerobically fit through running or cycling. In many cases, you can get more fit cycling because you don't take any pounding and your injury risk is lower. What you can't do is train your muscles and range of motion in the exact same way. The skill portion of running, the resistance to impact, the actual just fatigue of doing the running motion will not be there from only doing hill workouts on the bike. However, it won't take as long to build those things because you're not having to build the the engine up at the same time. So if you build most of your engine in a non, non-impact way, but in, in, a, in a systemically appropriate way, when you add running in, you will get better at running quicker than someone who's trying to do it all through running from the start. So if a runner starts running on week 12 and you started biking on week one and you start running on week 12 with them. So you bike for 12 weeks, someone starts running on day one of week 12 and you start running on day one of week 12, you're going to be substantially more fit than they are. And you may not be any less sore the first few days, but you are going to get over that quicker than they are going to build up their engine. Was there more to that question or is just likewise would interval session on the bike improve a person in the same ways as interval running workout would? Uh, only, only engine wise, oxygen transport, blood, heart, those kind of systems, same way. Yes. Muscles, range of motion, impact, no. Biking's the worst. (laughs) (laughs) That's my two cents. (laughs) In general, Lisa is very much not a cross-training fan. Not on bikes. Biking is hard, you guys. It's like I I can go run, sure, for however long. But biking, no. All of a sudden, I'm like (sighs) dying. My legs are hurting. It's just not fun. That's not fun for me. Okay. Well, I didn't pre-read this now because I was listening to you. All right, from Eric. You talked about training sessions that don't make sense, but what about little habits that don't make sense? For instance, I like to finish my runs with about 400 meters at a faster pace, regardless of whether it's an easy, long, or threshold run. Is making a habit of that detrimental to my training? Okay, and then there's another one. Do you want to answer that first? Let's start with that. Okay. Let's start with that. It really depends on how hard the hard is. So like if you're running easy the entire time and every single day, the last 400 meters, you pick it up to threshold pace. 
10k pace, 5k pace, it's probably just fine. You're getting some mechanical speed work in, right? You're just using your stride a little bit. It's not much different than doing a set of strides at the end of a run, which is done pretty much universally by pro athletes, college athletes, rec athletes. They just get done with the easy run and do three to six or so by 50 to 100 meter strides. It's not a ton different than running your last 400 at an up-tempo pace. But if you're kicking in, if you're sprinting in, if you're building actual fatigue during that time, over time, it's probably not best practice. But again, if it's only 400 meters and you're not truly sprinting it, it's probably negligible. But I'd really, I probably wouldn't do it on my pure recovery days. And that's probably, I mean, we could get real nitpicky here and talk about how it's just really, really, really not ideal and you're compromising things. Probably not. Because unless you're doing every single other thing right, it's probably not a big deal. But I just wouldn't do it too fast. And if I am going to do it really fast, I would do it only at the very end. And I would do it with rest in between. And I would call them strides. All right. Eric says, I'm a little bit heavy for a runner. 180 pounds at 13% body fat. Eric, no, you're not. As I've started to try to get faster, I've toyed with the idea of losing 10 pounds and getting to 10% body fat. What's your opinion on trying to manipulate body weight to improve racing performance? Not saying crash dieting, but a slow cut down to 170. Here, my first sentence, anticipating my second sentence. Lighter is always faster, period. Right up until it's not, period. And that's the important thing to know. Lighter is mechanically faster, but it doesn't mean it's faster because lighter is paired with a lot of other things that can go really, really wrong. Health, both physical and mental, and the ability to generate force. If you get lighter and weaker, you are not faster. If you get lighter and less healthy, you are not faster. If you get lighter and it becomes a a mental issue, eating disorder, body dysmorphia, things like that, you may get faster short-term and it is not sustainable and you will be a mess long-term. So that's how we have to approach all conversations about weight with racing. If done correctly, it has the potential to be beneficial right up until the point it doesn't. And you can almost never see that point coming. So when in doubt, don't lose weight to get faster. Train more to get faster. Train at higher or lower intensities. Train at bigger volume. Try new stimulus in training. Oftentimes those things will lead to a reduction in weight as a byproduct. But very rarely should people lead with weight loss as their first goal to get faster. Because, A, most people are not obese to the point where that's your number one goal. Some people are. Some people, the number one thing keeping you from just running at all, if not faster, is a huge excess of body fat. In which case, that is the goal and is the place, and I'm not the person to talk to about it. That's where you talk to a weight loss specialist. Kirk deals with a lot of clients like that. However, most people, if they're sitting at a body weight... Again, this is not a registered dietitian talking to you. This is a running coach who has seen far too many people develop mental hangups around food, body image, and body weight. Most people, if they could stand to lose a little bit of weight and would be faster in theory by doing so, they are not optimally training yet. And optimally training means doing everything right physically during the run and before and after the run. And so if you are optimally training, you're not binging, you're not withholding, you are fueling your body for performance, and then you are executing a perfect training plan. So until you're doing those things, you really don't have any need to risk, and it is a risk, to start 
getting yourself into a caloric deficit in order to gain speed because they're a lower hanging fruit for you, which is let's start running five days a week instead of four or six days a week instead of five and extending our long run and hitting more intervals and fueling better. And you're going to end up losing weight doing that anyway, most likely. So very, very rarely do I think 10 pounds is the difference between a, uh, a sub elite athlete and an elite athlete. Unless those 10 pounds came as a result of like a 25% increase in volume and two years of steady, consistent training where you were properly fueled. It was a little soapboxy. No, I think that's good. I mean, it's weight is like such a tricky thing to talk about, you know? Mm. What one person views as overweight is not overweight to a lot of people. So it's, I don't know, that's a hard one. Well, and really, I, I firmly believe that almost none of us are at the point where we've checked every single box except weight. Like an Olympic runner who's done everything right and is already lean but thinks I have another pound or two that could be the extra difference in the half a second per lap that I need to be a world champion. That's a different conversation, and it's also one that, as often as not, ends in disaster. Most of us can just raise our volume, fuel better sleep more, recover, and then work harder. Those things will get you the byproduct of the weight loss without having to focus on it and become a head case. I like that. I got to pop this top off. I was sweating too. <laughs> Your nips are up. <laughs> Every single time Kirk or I have to remove a layer, we flex for each other in the camera. Nice. I didn't. I never have two people in here. It, this is a small room, and this thing heats up quickly. Plus, you're leaning on me. My leg is sweating. Yeah, I never touch Kirk's <laughs> leg when we record. Ever. That's good. I like that. <laughs> okay, are you ready for But only one? because I can't reach him through the screen. Awkward. Okay. Uh, from Brandon. What do I do? By the way, I'm just reading first names. I feel like there's like a billion Brandons out there. So Let's go. Brandon. Okay, Brandon. Yeah. Why? Uh. First, I said thanks, Obama. Now I said let's go, Brandon. See oh, that in there? I get it. Let's go, Brandon. Okay. This is not a political show. These are just musings on things dumb people say. <laughs> so thanks, Obama. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Brandon wants to know what do I do if I'm tired of lifting and doing quality? I don't feel motivated for a big gym sesh. I enjoy doing five miles of aerobic work each morning now. I know I need intensity in the weights, just not feeling it. Would throwing a ruck on with 50 pounds do anything to help preserve strength or just injury? I want you to answer this for me. Don't, don't do it. Don't, don't do a ruck. No. <laughs> That's my answer. Uh, rucks serve a very specific purpose in this world, and it is to prepare people for long, arduous hikes under a load, carrying the gear necessary to survive that, that hike. Whether it's actually hiking, like through hiking, or if it's military carrying your life-saving equipment. For the average person, rucking is not good for you. I just had a lot of people out there get very upset. But for the average person who's not training for through hiking, big arduous camps high up in the mountains, or the military, there's really no reason to ruck from a physical health or performance standpoint. Now, we have examples of people who have become phenomenal at rucking, like Jarrett Newby, who doesn't train for any of those things, but he's probably like the greatest rucker on the planet. And there are examples of people who have to embrace the grind or the suck of things in order to improve themselves as a human being. Go through hard stuff, sure. But carrying a load that extends off of your back or off your front, depending on how you ruck, it's just not structurally great for you. And then adding in the just 
extremely amplified impact force on your body of trying to run with it. Uh, the risk reward is it's a bad setup, but it also doesn't accomplish either side of the coin as well as doing a more typical version of it. So it won't make you a much better runner, but it'll raise the risk of injury or of just structural instability while you're moving using bad form. And it also really won't drive any strength for you outside of maybe in your hips and a little bit in your legs, but not in a meaningful way that a weight room wouldn't do significantly better. Or even something like lunging. Lunging would be way better. Even weighted lunging. Put your ruck on and lunge. Or do squat pulses or... What are they? Mary Catherine's? Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. <laughs> it's Halloween. It is Halloween. We're getting a lot of good stuff out of this. We're recording this on Halloween. Do those kind of things if you're tired. But, but really, if you're... If you don't want to strength train, you don't want to do weighted lunges. You don't want to do Mary Catherine's, those kind of things. So here's what I say. If you don't have the motivation to do it, try not doing it for a while. And if the self-loathing or the lack of satisfaction with that doesn't spur you on, then it wasn't just a fatigue thing. Because usually when we're really dragging and don't want to do something anymore, it's because we're a little burnt out. Recover for a bit. If that doesn't fix it, now it's time for a workout, buddy. Either join a group class Hire a trainer or just get your buddy to start working out with you. And that is the easiest way to get workouts in. If I don't feel like lifting and there's someone to lift with, the lift goes really easy. So that's my advice. Don't do it or get a partner. But rucking, I really, unless you're training, I have never recommended rucking for anyone who wasn't training for an event that rucking would help them for. Full stop. Okay. Good advice. <clears throat> okay. Can you just look at this? Or I think you guys already answered this one. The creatine one? For sure we answered the first one. The second one we might have, but let's do it anyway because it's worth chatting out slightly. Okay. All right. So here's question number two. How do you train for a not runnable, super technical terrain 50K in the mountains with 12,000 feet gain? Would climbing with a weight vest help? Also, how do you descend nasty downhills without breaking an ankle? Thank you. Yeah. So we did touch upon a very similar question to this. Maybe even this exact question, but so many people are preparing for this type of thing right now that... Let's hit it again. First of all, this is the time where uh, a ruck can help, but not a ruck, a weight vest. Much different. It keeps it closer to your body and you're not going for weight. You're starting with like 7% of your body weight. That's a good, safe place to start. And only for the uphills. So doing incline training, hiking in a weight vest, really, really good for that. Doing a stair workout. If you can take the elevator down, even better. That kind of thing is really good. I don't get too far into running downhill with a weighted vest, but a small amount. Again, if we're talking 5 to 7% of your body weight, that's acceptable. And you can grow it up to 10 or 12%, and I probably wouldn't exceed that for running ever. There's some good studies back in the day that starting with like somewhere between 4 and 6, 4 and 7% of your body weight is enough to really stress the soft tissue in a way that doesn't injure you, and you can grow into it over the course of a week or two and then move up from there. And that was more for just like functional fitness and life fitness. It wasn't running specific. But if they're only talking 4 to 7% for life fitness, do we really want to load up more than that and run downhill? Probably not. And then it's also worth keeping in mind that if you're doing a nasty ultra with 12,000 feet of vert, you're probably going to have to carry a lot of gear, which could be 4 to 7% of your body weight. Let's say I'm 180 right now. 10% of my body weight would be 18 pounds half of that nine pounds is probably realistic to what I'd have to start with for 
a mandatory kit, like a UTMB mandatory kit. I'll probably have anywhere from six to nine pounds on me for that. So you're going to have to move with that weight on race day. So having a small percentage, single digit of your body weight is not a bad thing, but that is not, I know that sounds like rucking. It's not rucking. You're, you're loading up weights and bigger is better in that community. So not ripping the community. It just doesn't serve the purpose for this like we'd want it to. And then how do you train for it? You get on that terrain as much as possible. And then you do a ton of lunges, a ton of sled push and pull. And you do as many fast feet routines as you possibly can. Jump roping is great. Get on the most technical downhills you can find. Run a lot of stairs. If you can run downstairs fast, you can run down technical terrain. It's about being fast. The faster you're, not speed wise, but fast feet. The faster your feet are off the ground, the safer you are. Breaking, plunging your your heels into the ground to slow yourself down destroys your quads, and it increases the chance of you getting hurt when your feet encounter something nasty. And you have to train your eyes. The more technical you can run, the better your eyes and feet get at working together and just knowing where they're supposed to land. Yep, I agree. Yes, you do. All right, and she has another question. How much grip training should I do? Is it better... One session a week or a little bit every day after my run? Well, a little bit every day is better than one session for week, per week. Unless that one session is something like going to a ninja gym and spending like over an hour doing some pretty intensive. Otherwise, two to three times a week is enough for most people. Two to three times of 10 to 20 minutes total of grip. It can be finishers. It can be thrown in a compromised run. It can be thrown in at the end, which is what I like to do, the end of lifts. The only race-specific work I did prior to that Michigan Spartan was I started doing my core as hanging core at the end of my lifts. That's the only difference. And it's really, really effective because you're already tired and then you have to use your grip, which is that's as OCR specific as anything. So answer two to three times a week, split the difference between one big one and every single. That was all of them, Bracken. Look at that. Done under an hour. It's always our goal for training Tuesday. We almost never do it. You know what the difference is? I'm here keeping you on track. We didn't talk about ourselves for the first 10 to 20 minutes. Do you want to? Yeah, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> what do you have going in your, your life right now? Well. Running-wise. Oh. Oh, you can talk about Well, you, I was going to say we got a bunny. You didn't talk about your bunny the last no, time. No, we got a bunny, you guys. It's so cute. His name's Toby, and he kind of acts like a dog. So Toby, it's him. <laughs> no, um, I was going to say that it's good it's under an hour because we are going to this, like, pumpkin smash thing. Uh, I It's so you can get rid of all of your jack-o'-lanterns and whatnot but it looks like a lot of fun you can bowl them bat them step on them smash them. i don't know what i don't know what all the options are but i'm super pumped for it yeah it's at the local high school <clears throat> but i want to talk about your running for five minutes here lisa okay. did her episode like a year ago where you talked about city strides and all your neurotic running that you do and one of the things i don't know how much you talked about there was your goal to run the year so 2022 run 2022 miles i believe 2021 and 2022 you failed both once was because of your achilles maybe it's like 2020 or 2019 or whatever she failed for because of her achilles once and then last year she had her stress fracture so this year she's made it all the way to october one year to the day of when she first felt her stress fracture last year and what do you know her shin started hurting her but she is dead set on doing this because she's a stubborn person and so she is taken to the trails I was going to boo, but actually this is like such a wonderful time to be running on trails. The leaves are so pretty and it's right along a river. I'm like a water person. So that is just, it's very pretty. You're in danger of sounding like that 
the couple that got interviewed about the the perfect <laughs> snow. It's such wonderful running. It's just so perfect. And then they eat it on the way out. I have not fallen yet. I will say that. But um, yeah, so I'm on the trails now. And I was going to try and do like two, three days on the trail and then three, two, three days on the road so I could continue progressing through Milwaukee. I've officially run 75% of Milwaukee streets. Um, but no, my shin doesn't really love it. And so I'm just going to stay on trails until the end of the year. I'm being really stubborn, like Bracken said. I have to finish this goal. Last year, I was 150 miles ahead of my goal in October when I felt the stress fracture. Okay. Then I went and got the stress fracture looked at, but I had to take weeks off because of our medical system. And then I was told, ah, no, actually, it's an old stress fracture. Go ahead and keep running. But now, after all these weeks off, I didn't make my goal. So even in January, I was like only just starting to run like 30, 40 miles again, a week again. And so I was not sure if I should go for it. So this year I've been like, okay, I'm not going to build up a bunch of miles. I'm just going to take it easy and go gentle on my legs. And sure enough, October, and now my legs are not super happy again. So I have like, I'm only like 16 miles ahead of goal at this point. But this is why I cannot work with you. (laughs) Because we've learned early on, you'll say, what's your advice for me as a coach? And I'll give you like some half truth to protect myself. You'll say, all right, what's your advice for me as my husband? And then I say, you should go run. Always. So we're not compatible from an athlete coach perspective. And what was your your like what what's your mindset here? If I get injured, I can pay for it next year? Well, I did say specifically, yes. I have to make it to December thirty first. And then if my leg wants to just break clean in half, go for it. As long as I make it through this year. Yeah. And so I <laughs> I, I just have to stay out of this. And it is what it is, and hopefully she survives. But but this is this is always an exciting thing. I've rolled these dice before, knowing I'm risking an injury intentionally, and I'm actually going to push it and maybe even make it worse. So this is these are the fun days. This is exciting. You never know what's going to happen. Will I make it? Will it fracture? Will it be all Bracken's fault? Who knows? Or will it just be I was in my head thinking that I needed to keep my legs safe, and then and then the MRI shows actually my leg was fine the whole time. Keep running. So stay tuned. We're either going to have a victorious follow-up to this or a very sad, depressing, I told you so. No, that's the thing about it. I'm doing it to myself. It just is what it is at this point. It is what it is until it ain't. (laughs) Happy Halloween, everyone. Get out there. Hit those trails. Hit the trails.